Your host, Katie Thomas, is the Director of Portfolio Services at New Day Solutions, a firm offering expertise in retirement planning with more than 25 years of experience, dedicated to high net worth individuals, families, and business owners. We work with you to have a coordinated approach for your comprehensive investment goals, providing concierge service for all generations from a team who can see things from your side of the table. Go to NewDaySolutions.com for more information. Working with your investments, retirement, insurance, estate, or tax planning, or just dealing with everyday expenses, your money matters. Let KT Thomas help you make the most of it. This is KT's Money Matters. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is KT from KT's Money Matters, coming to you about your tips and quips about all things financial. Uh, One of the things I've been hearing a lot about from the Money Matters community is people interested in starting businesses, wondering about things like raising venture capital and doing different things that allow them to grow and expand businesses. So not just, you know, starting your small family business, but really thinking about, you know, bigger and more interesting ventures. So I always like to find people that can provide some insight as to how you might think about these ideas, you know, both big and small. And so I found an old friend of mine, Carol Reibold, to come and spend some time with us today. Um, You know, Carol and I met like, I don't know, Carol, 15 years ago, maybe. We were both uh, coaching and mentoring charity runners for team and training for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And she was the first CFO on demand I had ever met, meaning she basically provided strategic CFO work for different companies and thought that was just such an interesting way to make a living. Now she does CEO strategic work. So she's moved up. She does a lot of different things. She does catalyst and coaching. She works with senior leaders to help them figure out what the most important things are to do in terms of transformation. She looks at things like organizational assessments and strategy planning, executive management, operations, turnarounds, mergers and acquisitions, interim executive management, debt and equity financing, corporate restructuring, executive coaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she recently decided that she was, you know, I don't know, a little bored. So she added, now she's doing, a, she's doing an associate professorship at the University of New Hampshire, Peter T. Paul School of Business and Economics, teaching just this to the masses. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have her with us? Carol, say hello. Hello, thank you for having me. So now what made me think about having you, Carol, was this program that you're doing at the school around this idea of Startup 101, which is, you know, people ask me all the time, what do I need to do to start a business? You know, how do I really need to think about it? What kind of skills does an entrepreneur really need to have? And so uh, you've actually written a whole presentation on this. So what I'd like to do is maybe talk a little bit about what you think all entrepreneurs have in common and we can maybe build from there. I think what all entrepreneurs have in common is the ability to, to look and to find a problem that needs to be solved. And that, may, that problem may be impacting them directly. It may impact a large number of people, and it may come from a number of different places. So it might be a service, it might be a product, but they really have the ability to think out of a box. 
a number of really well-known entrepreneurs have actually failed before they've been successful. So I think it's that ability to create resilience and to see things that other people can't see and to solve problems. And to be willing to fail. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, having been self-employed my entire career, you know, I've tried a few things that have been kind of bombs, you know, news alert. And I've had, you know, some things work out extremely well, but the reality is if you don't try, if you don't try it, you're never going to have the good idea because you kind of have to be willing to learn on the job and be willing to be wrong. I, I think it's also at times when you fail, you learn much more from your failures than you ever do from your successes. So taking those failures and learning from them, and maybe there was a kernel of the idea that was good and it can transform into the next idea. So what, can you talk a little bit about you? You talk about these kind of the phases of figuring out what to do when you're going to start a business. Can you talk a little bit, can we maybe talk about, talk a little bit in depth about phase one and what people should be thinking about if they're going to actually try to do something? One of the things I see most often is that people will form a company um, and move forward without having any idea whether there's a market for their product. So first and foremost, it's really understanding what problem you're solving, who you're solving it for, and for how many people. So market research, talking with people, figuring out who else is doing what you're doing, and figuring out why you're doing it differently. I call that the sort of investigative phase or phase one where you're not really investing a lot of money in the project. You're just doing a lot of research. And do you think many startups skip this and they just go right into, you know, form an LLC and go? I think a lot of companies of all sizes skip this. A lot of times I'll be driving down the road in my hometown and I'll see a business that's open and think that is never going to be successful here. So it's everything from a very small business to a technology company that may think that they have the next best thing, except the market's not ready for it. So they could have a great product, but nobody's really, and nobody's willing to buy it right now. So an example of that was when I was the CEO of a telecom company in 2008, which you could imagine was a really tough call. Oh, that's a fantastic time. <laughs> yeah, it was, great. it was a great time and it was a turnaround situation. Um, and what we were doing is we were trying to convince people to replace their phone systems. Great technology, state-of-the-art technology, next gen, but really, nobody in 2008 was going to rip out their phone system unless it was dying. The economy right. was so horrible. So that's a really good example of a great product, wrong time for the market. So it's really, you know, understanding where your market is and not being fooled by things like early adopters to technology that convince you that there is a market. So I like to do a lot of market research. It doesn't have to be slow and time-consuming. You can continue to explore your idea in parallel, but I wouldn't invest a lot of money until I really understood there was a market for the product. So I see this a lot now. It feels like there's a new app every 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there are so many apps and, you know, I mean, the app business is, it's a very cool business, right? Because I think that people really love the idea of easy technology, but there's so much of it coming so quickly that, that 90, 95% of the people are not even ever seeing it, never mind trying it. Yeah, I mean, the app business is a really, really tough business. I see a lot of people wanting to go into the app business. Um, I think mostly because they enjoy 
technology on their phone. But there really is, you know, there's certain apps that have made a lot of money, but those are the minority. I think for the most part, it's really hard business model with so many different people sharing pieces of revenue. So if you have an app on your iPhone, you're paying 30% per transaction to Apple. Um, I think it's the same on a, on a Samsung or a Google. So there really is a lot of revenue sharing going on without right. a lot of share. So a $1.99 app that you're downloading split, you know, a couple different ways doesn't leave. You have to sell a lot of those to look like a right. business. That's right. I found this out recently in the book business, you know, in that I decided to go into an industry where people aren't reading anymore and I'm going to sell books. Part of this is I had always wanted to write books for people, financial advice, kind of not lecturing. And so I was committed that this was going to be the way that I went. And uh, despite the fact that the economics were not that great. So it was like, good thing that, you know, they say, if you're going to write, it better be a labor of love because it's probably not going to be a labor of profit. You kind of have to go into it knowing that you're not going to make the kind of money from it that you think something of great artistic value might be worth. And so that's the acid test of like thinking about, is this really something that you're doing for profit or for hobby? Is it really something that you think that there's more appetite in beyond just, you know, you and your family who might buy your book or your app or however that goes? And then how many ways are you going to need to cut the money in order to make any money for yourself? And is it worth all the time and the effort? And I see, to your point, stores opening and closing, you know, within three months, little restaurants all the time. Right. Where people just are clearly not stopping in the beginning to figure out whether or not there's even a demand for that. Right. But I mean, in your case, it feels like you did all of that research and decided this was a labor of love, regardless of, of the revenue that came out of it. And to me, that's an informed decision. Not, you know, so it is that doing that research and understanding that some, you know, this may not be as successful as I want it to be, but, but it's a labor of love and I'm going for it. That's right. And so I always say, you know, is it your, is it your side hustle, right? Or is it a real business venture? Is this something that you're doing that you think you're interested in, that you think you could make, make a little money on the side? Or do you really perceive that you're trying to drive a business that ultimately would become, you know, could become your mainstream idea? And so when I thought about Startup 101, here I think about people that think it's going to be their mainstream idea. So the first thing they need to do is phase one is they need to figure out, first of all, is there's, there's a real market for it, as you said. Second is who would buy it? Are there enough people that would buy it? And then you also talk about like, who's your, who's your end customer? Is it another business? Is it the consumer directly? And then, you know, as you're coming out of phase one and into phase two, this is when you start parting with your hard-earned cash people. So let's talk a little bit about development and early sales, what people should be thinking about in phase two. Right. I think phase two, um, when you decide there's a market and you go into development, you really want to be continuing to test the market at the same time, really looking for early customer wins and continuing to get as much feedback as possible. I think it's critical to know who your, your customer is, as you said. A business-to-business -business marketing and sales strategy is going to be different to, from a business-to-consumer. So it's really starting to develop and understand both your revenue model and your sales and marketing model. So, you know, if you're a B2B and you're thinking you're going to sell your product on Facebook, that might not work. 
I don't know what the product is, but you really need to look at all of your strategies and how you're going to be successful selling to the customer that's going to buy your product. And a lot of times what I see is a shortcut in the marketing spend because they're, you know, the company is bootstrapped still at this point, but really not understanding how to sell to their customer. So they may have some early customer wins, but they need to be really, really careful of not assuming that's the trend of the total market. So you also talk about the making sure the revenue model really works before you decide to expand. Because I think that, you know, all every entrepreneur I ever met, they want to expand and grow. And the desire to do that sometimes can get in the way of the right decisions. And you're basically like, listen, you need to make sure that the revenue piece works before you decide to start pushing it out to find out where, you know, where the holes are. Well, and there's two reasons for that. One, you can really fool yourself that there's a market for your product. When we were talking about the phone business earlier in 2008, a lot of early adopters really thought that was a cool thing to have, to have mobility, things that we didn't have back in 2008. But those people, that was a small subset of this total SMB market. So 600 customers looked like success. So what did they do? They expanded nationally. So when they expanded nationally, they increased their burn rate and they found out that the market wasn't really there, right? So it's really understanding um, who your customer is and, and if they're ready to, to buy your product and if the market timing is right. And so you need a really strong sales and marketing plan. You need to continue to test the market and you need to prove if you want to grow and scale to an investor that you have a scalable business. Um, a lot of times, marginal success to an entrepreneur doesn't look like anything material if you're talking to a venture capitalist, an angel investor, or private equity. So you just led a very good point. If somebody is trying to, first of all, they're trying to get their business off the ground in the beginning, it's kind of like them and only them. And then at some point, they are either a small them and only them business, or they're looking to expand and then they're going to need people with deeper pockets. So you talked about three different kinds of investors. Can you elaborate a little about each type and what kind of businesses, what kind of things businesses should know about these types of investors? Well, first of all, I tell people, if you're going to take external funding, money is more than green. So whoever you um, bring into your business, whether it's um, an angel or an equity investor, they, they are going to be with you probably from anywhere from three to seven years. So anybody you take money from that's an angel or you know, private equity or um, venture capitalist are going to expect a return on their investment, which means at some point down the road, they either want your company to go public or to be acquired. So I always ask people to think about really whether they wanna stay small or they wanna expand into that larger market. They may have a smaller piece of a bigger pie, but it's really like a big inflection point for a company. So when you're, in a, when you're early and you're not looking for a lot of money, typically people look for angel investors. And angel investors are people who have done well, who are looking to individually um, invest in companies. Typically they look for what we call a convertible note. So a convertible note is a note that will then when you, you raise your first true venture fund of financing, convert into that round. 
So they're smaller. They're not looking to put a lot of money to work. They typically invest in seed and series A. And then when you're ready for your next round, your bigger round, I would say two to five million, that's where private equity and venture capital come in. And they're more institutional investors. They're gonna look at the company to be, to, to basically grow up, to have a board of directors, to you know, have a strategic plan, to really be executing to what they say they are because they're really looking to drive strategic value into the business for them to get an exit. So for this point, one of the things you're saying is you've got to make sure that this is somebody you're going to be okay having in and around your business for the next three to seven years. You can't just take a check because the check showed up. Right. Right. For sure. You know, they should be able to provide you with introductions and create networking opportunities. They should be able to help advise on whatever their area of expertise is. Some come with development experience. Some have a sales and marketing background but they should just bring something more than just money and you should actually like working with them. Well, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of business owners over the year take checks from people that they, that they don't really get along with, they don't really like, and they feel desperate. They take that money and then they don't realize that they could be, um, you know, that this can be the death of a good business too, because if you're not happy, you know, your angel's probably not happy either then you're going to have to try to figure out how to move that person along. And it doesn't really work that way. No, no. Once they're invested and they have an equity piece in your company, they're a partner in your business. And unless you decide to buy them out, and, I, and I'm assuming if you're taking money because you feel a little desperate, you don't have the capital to do that. Right. Uh, they're really, they're there for the long term. So now people are at a place where, you know, phase two, they've maybe, they've completed those things. They've maybe raised their first round of financing and they're starting to feel like, uh, you know, like a little happy with their, where they are, a little grown up. And uh, so now they're right into phase three. They're looking at growth and expansion, which this is much bigger. This is like more like a grown up business. And there are a lot of things that they need to be thinking about now, but they need to, why don't you talk a little bit about like what we think about as the first the four or five things they should really be thinking about at this juncture? I think the biggest thing that they need to think about is how their entire business scales. It's easy for them to see how I grow from 600 customers to 1,000, but how it scales from 600 customers to 10,000 customers. And what within the organization is going to break first? So now you're really starting to think about customer service. You're thinking about processes and software and technology that drive your business. You're thinking about how your financials and your reporting and your metrics align so that you have the tools to be able to take your business to that really large next level. And this is really hard sometimes for, for executives to see. A lot of times I'll say to CEOs, you have you know, 10,000 customers. What happens when you have 50? 50,000 customers, what's going to break in your organization first? So it's really getting their heads around that really big leap. And that's a really hard thing sometimes to get your head wrapped around. Yeah, because they just smile and they go, 50,000 customers would be amazing. And you're like, I know, but if you lose them, it'll be bad. Yes. Yes. This is a point where if you can't maintain the customer experience or the product quality, as you scale, you'll start to lose customers and you'll have churn. So that scalability piece is the most critical piece 
of understanding each, what it means to each element of the organization, to the sales and marketing team, to the finance team, and to customer experience and product development. You know, I read a lot of stories about finance and about companies that's that, you know, trying to come up the wall to come public. Like I think about, you know, companies like Lyft and Uber now that are, you know, companies that started under one very different model and then ultimately are trying to get their ducks in a row. And you can almost see they're living their whole experience kind of like in the Wall Street Journal as they go from being, you know, a bunch of guys in a room with a computer to, you know, a really developed, expanded company. And now they're trying to, you know, clean it all up and take themselves public, which of course, in this model, the final goal for the owner is a, is a liquidity event where they get to recognize profits from all the hard work that they've done by taking their public company, their company public and sharing it with others. Can you share a little bit about what the, you know, some of the, some of the challenges in that and, you know, and then senior executives and why it might be interesting to be involved in a startup that ultimately goes public? Mm -hmm. I was actually involved in a startup that was trying to go public in 1999 into 2000, before the 2000 downturn. And a lot of companies, and I, I see it now as well, a lot of companies look to the IPO as like the goal, when really an IPO is, is a liquidity event and a funding event to help you, your company, potentially reach, reach the next level, whether that's being an aggregator of you know, different companies that there was a lot of that in the 2000 timeframe with CRM. Absolutely. And a lot of, a lot of people felt that the C, that the IPO was the goal where the next day, once you're a public company, there is so much work that needs to be done. All of the five, you know, this with your business, yes. all the filing requirements, what's required, you know, a number of companies in that time frame were going public on QuickBooks and it was hmm. a it, crazy, crazy time. <laughs> crazy time. And I think, you know, there was so much money that was being poured into venture that there wasn't really a lot of thought about what it really meant to be a public company. And I think, you know, seeing this next, next batch of public, you know, people filing like Uber and Lyft to go public, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. And even to some extent, companies like Facebook, when you look at Facebook, this is Mark Zuckerberg's only job. This is the only right. job he's ever had. It's the only job he's ever had. Yeah. And there's a maturity that has to happen as a public company. And, you know, you may have venture capital and still not have the maturity to be a public company. So there's a lot of work that needs to go in. You need to make sure you have the right team um, and a seasoned team that's been through it before and surround yourself with really good advisors. Well, and so, you know, I always, I sort of love the financial news, but I've kind of been having a little fun watching, you know, Elon Musk kind of, you know, tweet himself into major, you know, lawsuits and settlements because you can't run it like you used to run it when you were just the only guy that cared. Right. You have to run it like everybody cares all the time. And that's, you know, I find that the innovators and the great, the great thinkers and expanders that the person who brings the company in the first place is not always the person that can then put on the suit and run the day-to-day, -day, you know, with the right vocabulary and the, the right offerings and the right legalese that that's just not who they are or they never would have come up with their idea in the first place. One of the most interesting talks I ever listened to was 
all of the CEOs of Cisco Systems, with the two people who founded the company in the garage, and then the CEO that took it to the next level, and then John Chambers. And I was just, it, it was such a life lesson for me because they each knew what lane they belonged in. They knew that they were good in this size of a company. And when the company got to that level that they needed a different leadership team, and then again, another leadership team. So I think it's really critical from the very beginning to understand where, where your comfort zone is and not get caught up on whether you're still the CEO as the company moves to an IPO. Right, because the idea is to bring your, you know, is to bring your ID, idea forward. It's not to ride herd on the whole organization. Right, and I say that to people. I say, do you really want to take venture capital because you may not be the CEO at the end of the day? And that might be all right with you, but you really need to be okay with that going in. I just had a conversation with a, a client that has a private equity firm interested in her business and how having her be an aggregator. And I said, Julie, you've been your own boss for 15 years. You have a $15 million business. Do you want the structure of private equity in here telling you what to do? Because you've never had anybody to answer to, you know? So those are the, there's like inflection points along the way. So there may be these phases, but then there's also inflection points. And so you say, you know, in order to turn your idea into reality, you need to be intentional and you need to do research. You need to look at the outcomes and the goals at each phase. I mean, you talk about not putting the cart in front of the horse. But even with all of that said, you're like, you should try this. If this is what you really want, you have a passion about it, you learn how to, you learn, you think you have a niche, like don't sit on the couch with it. Go find out. I have a number of students who actually have companies at UNH. Um, Interesting. And it's great to watch them because their inflection point, their risk point is, do I get a job at Google or do I continue to explore my entrepreneurial idea? And um, I think for me, for, I, I just want them to keep generating ideas because I think if you look forward to the next generation, they need to be an innovative thought leaders. And the more that we can get them to take risks and to think about um, starting companies, I think our generation has more ability to take risk than this next generation. So I encourage anyone who has an idea to explore it. I've had thousands of cups of coffee with entrepreneurs talking about their ideas because I really believe in entrepreneurship and I feel like it's the future of our country. That's a good note to end on. Let me ask you something. If people wanted to, if I had any listeners that wanted to reach out to you that were thinking about starting a business that were actually looking for somebody uh, with your expertise, is there a way that they might be able to connect with you on uh, LinkedIn or how might, how might somebody reach you if they had Definitely, a really I, good idea? I, I am on uh, LinkedIn and that's a great way to connect with me. Perfect. And I'll make sure I link that in the show notes, Carol, so that they can reach out to you that way if they're interested. And then I wish you luck as a professor in your spare time, which, you know, we were laughing about that a little earlier, the lack of spare time. So any parting thoughts that we want to make sure that we add that I didn't get to? No, I, thanks for having me. I, I really love what you're doing and how you're helping entrepreneurs and people hear different messages that they might not otherwise hear. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. So to my Money Matters listeners, 
you can listen back to this one. I also did a show earlier on about thinking about a small start, a small self-employed business. I think that I personally love entrepreneurship myself, been self-employed a really long time. And when I think about the opportunities in the future to either align yourself with a company that's a startup that's starting something new to maybe be on the cutting edge of something completely different or starting maybe even your own venture is one great way over time to change the trajectory of your financial life. I want to thank you for listening in today and uh, until we speak again. Thanks for listening to KT's Money Matters with KT Thomas. For more information, past episodes, and show notes, go to www.ktsmoneymatterspodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and recommend it at iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.